I'm excited. Today we are, we've come to the conclusion of our series called Frequency. We've been talking for several weeks. How do we tune in to the voice of God today? How do we hear him speaking to us today? <clears throat> and I apologize, I've got a little bit of a little junk in the throat today, so you get to hear my sexy voice. Um, I apologize for that. But this morning is special because, uh, as we talked about last week, uh, this is kind of Q&A Sunday. We are answering the questions that you've been sending in throughout this series. And so we're going to dive right in, okay, because we've got some things to, to um, we want to answer as many questions as we can. All right, so let's get to, here we go. First question, is it okay to ask God to give me a sign so I know his will about something I'm going through? It's a good question. It's probably one of the top 10 questions I get throughout my life uh, and uh, just hear from people. It's a big question. It's most often asked, why? Because a sign makes everything simple, doesn't it? A sign makes it all easy, right? We just, I need an answer from God regarding a particular decision. God gives me a sign. Boom, I got my answer. That was super easy. Uh, and of course, the most famous uh, instance of this in the Bible is the, in the book, uh, in the, the story of Gideon, uh, who asked God for a sign and God gave him a sign. Um, however, however, the problem is that's not the way that God wants to answer most of the desires uh, or, or uh, that, that he most desires to communicate with us is not actually through signs, not for New Testament Christians. In fact, if you go back and look at that story of Gideon, which I think we, we talked about in a series maybe last year or the year before, um, God already told Gideon the answer. He already told him what to do. Gideon was in doubt. He needed some extra, he needed some extra assurance. He was like, I, I know you already told me what to do, but I need a sign that like you really want me to do it. And God was just very merciful in that. So that's definitely not a story that we want to take as prescriptive, um, but that is more of a story of the mercy of God, that he didn't just go, forget you, I'm going to go to somebody else. God was just merciful and, and continued to hang out with Gideon and, and use him. For Christians... We have to, we want to be careful when it comes to science, because what this really taps into is something uh, I kind of call Christian magic. We can get into Christian magical thinking. Um, basically, think about the whole idea of magic for a second. You know, magic is very popular in pop culture, whether you're talking about like the deep, dark, you know, scary magic of like pagan cultures or like the disney magic of Marvel and Snow White and WandaVision and that sort of thing. Uh, magic is essentially, when you break it down, magic is essentially, essentially about manipulating the spirit realm for your own benefit. Manipulating the spirit realm for your own benefit. And if you learn to do it right, you get the response you want, right? If you learn how to say Lingardium Leviosa, then it works, right? If you're Harry Potter fans there. Uh, but the real common thread with magic is that nothing depends on your relationship with God. Nothing depends on your, your love of God or nothing depends on your character. I mean, think about every story, fairy tale you've ever heard. There can, you could can be an evil sorcerer or you could be a good wizard using the magic, right? Magic doesn't care about your character. In the kingdom of God, for a Christian, everything depends on your character. Everything depends on your relationship with God and developing your capacity to have communication and communion with God. So it's the exact opposite of magic. So what does Christian magic look like when we refer to this term? How do we spot it? One of the main ways that it pops up in sort of everyday Christian life is what we might call sign theology. Sign theology. Uh, this is people discerning what God is saying through the signs, through what's happening around them, treating the entire world as sort of like one big zodiac map or like tea leaves to read, right? Um, trying to discern patterns in random events 
to determine that God is really saying through these signs. And it's kind of easy to see when you think about it why this rarely works. Because we're human beings and people invariably have this real knack for projecting their own wishes, their own fears into the randomness of the world. Um, we are really good at like spotting patterns where there really aren't patterns. Uh, our own greed, our own preferences, even our own phobias and fears will always be projected onto the ambiguity of the everyday world. And every event that happens can easily become just sort of a convenient proof to us that kind of what we were already hoping was right is right, right? It's, it's called self-confirmation bias, right? Um, and so whatever happens, it confirms that what we were already seeking is, is the truth, or maybe whatever happens was God's intention. Sometimes it's whatever we feared the most truly was worthy of our being afraid. But now, because of this sort of sign theology, we have the authority of God behind us because we, we see God's hand in it. So we see, and so, you know, the, the universe is slipping us a clue. And so you can't really question it or you're questioning God. Um, or for some people, it's a deep sense of shame. That's the issue that they have going on. There's a deep sense of shame that God really doesn't like them, that he's sort of against them, and they'll project that onto events around them. Everything that goes wrong, they'll be like, yep, see, sure, sure enough, God really is mad at me. He's punishing me. Um, often these are, are the folks who might say, um, there are no coincidences. And no judgment if this is something you say, but it's just, it's, it's not scriptural. There's nothing in the Bible that says there's no coincidences. Um, there's nothing in the Bible that leads us to this is, to believe that this is how the kingdom works, that God is tweaking all the things around you in order to give you a sign of his will. It's just not scriptural. And so we could call that sort of like magical thinking. And it makes you tend to find exactly what you were hoping already to find. There was a guy who was finally convinced to go to marriage counseling. And, and uh, he finally get, he, so the day arrives, he's going to marriage counseling. And on the way there, he gets a flat tire. And it was a sign that God really didn't want him to go to marriage counseling. He didn't want his marriage to work, which was very convenient because he had a mistress on the side that he'd rather be with anyway, right? But the signs told him that. There was another case where a woman who was very troubled um, emotionally, and she, she was, uh, finally went to counseling. She didn't feel like she was worthy of anything, a lot of just a lot of self-hatred, went to counseling, couldn't find a parking place. It was full. And it was a sign that sure enough, God really doesn't want her healed because God hates her, right? This is sort of the thinking behind every young person who believes they have found the person destined for them in their dreams because, right, you like pizza, I like pizza, you like puppies, I like puppies, right? Well, it must be destined by God. We're soulmates. Um, <laughs> So how do we combat this? How do we combat this? Because it's important because I, I'm not picking on anybody. The truth is all of us, I mean, human, this is just human nature. All of us are susceptible to self-confirmation bias on occasion. So the way we overcome this in the kingdom context is really simple. I would say be in communion with people, number one. Be in community with people, rather. Community with people. There is more often than not, safety in numbers when it comes to the church. Now, it is true. Sometimes there's a case of mass delusion, but more often than all things being equal, the more of us, there, there is wisdom. There is a collective wisdom to be found in the church, and the church provides us boundaries, uh, boundaries for our, for our faith that, that help come between us and uh, really weird ideas. So, stay in community with people. Don't get isolated. That's where people get weird. The second thing is, I would say, be in communion with God. And that's what we've been talking about throughout the 
series. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you'll start to think his thoughts. That's just truth. If, you know, the more you spend in communion with him, the more he communicates to you. We, we like to say, the more you get to know God, the more you can trust him. And it's so true. Remember in week one, we talked about how communication begins with communion. Communication begins with communion. So, what are we saying? Time, time spent with God in prayer, spent reading the scriptures, spent in community with fellow believers. That's how you'll tap into his voice, okay? And we can avoid that sort of self-confirmation. And we can avoid living life by sign theology. We don't need that. Amen. All right, let's look at the second question here. Question number two. How can I be sure I'm making the choice that God wants me to make when it does come to a big decision? Marriage, job, buying a house, etc. With this, there, there really is no shortcut. There really is no shortcut I found in my life. Spending time every day just sitting in his presence, growing familiar with the voice of Christ. An amazing thing happens to us that we actually, as you spend time with Christ, you actually grow in the character of Christ. It's true. It's true. He's pouring himself into you. That time you're spending, he's pouring himself. This means that not only will you start to be more sensitive to his voice, but as we talked about in the first week of this series, the very thoughts and feelings that you have, that internal dialogue that's going on inside you, will be being influenced to a greater degree by the Spirit of God. Your own thoughts and feelings will become influenced by the Spirit of God. Because remember, God created you. He created your intellect. He gave you reasoning. He gave you logic, right? He gave you the ability to think through things. He gave you your emotions. He gave you your imagination. He gave you all these things. We don't have to be afraid of these things as we spend time with Jesus. So even as you sit and you meditate in his presence, you're meditating in his presence. You just quiet down the rest of the world, and you're talking to God. You're listening to God. You're praying through Scripture. You're in community with the, with the, with the church. That becomes a place where you meet God. And, you know, you've heard, you've, we know the Scripture that says that um, if we delight in God, he will give us the desires of our heart, right? He'll give us the desires of our heart. Well, what's the first part of that? If we delight in God— what is that? That is that communion with God. If you are delighting in him, you're spending time with him. If you're spending that time, he is going to place his desires in your heart. You can trust him to do that. When you're delighting in God, he places his desires in your heart. So of course he'll give you the desires of your heart because they're the desires of his heart, right? That's, that's a beautiful thing. So here's what we would say. If you have a big decision coming up, first, purify your motives. Purify your mode. This means not succumbing to that confirmation bias. Spend some time in prayer. You pray your way, kind of aligning your ultimate will to be whatever God's is. You say, God, uh, whatever, whatever your will, your kingdom come, your will be done. We don't pray just trying to coerce God into just following our agenda no matter what. That's kind of typically often is our prayers. I've been guilty of that. Just get on board, God. I got this thing I need you to do. But if you start out praying, God, your will be done. Get me aligned with you. I want to delight in you so that your desires are in my heart, right? Um, and, and even if it turns out to, your will turns out to be something different than I, would, I was at first thinking it would be. All right. So we purify our motives. The second is ask your friends. See, it always comes back to community. Ask some friends, right? Get a little help from my friends. And ask people you trust who are wise, 
who are spiritually mature. And I'll say this, it's a great thing. This is just some pastoral advice. Great thing to ask people who are further along in life, in spirituality, whatever, especially in that area that you're believing for, right? So if you have a relational question, I'm looking for a spouse. Well, go to someone who's kind of looks like they're doing it right, right? They've, they've been married. They seem like they're doing it right. If you have a financial question, look to somebody who seems to be operating by the financial keys of the kingdom, right? Go to a person who's a little further along with to, than yourself. That's just good wisdom, good wisdom. So ask your friends. Third one, so important, look for the peace. Look for the peace. Melissa and I have we have lived by this probably more than anything else for the last 23 years of marriage. We look for the peace. Use, as you use your imagination, that God-given imagination, you envision the different outcomes. Like you've got a decision coming up before you. It's a big decision. Should I do this or that? Imagine the different ways you could go. You kind of think them through. Kind of project into the future. Okay, it would, maybe this would look like this. This one would look like this. Which scenario creates the most peace? Where do you have... And, 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 all, and look for anxiety. Well, boy, this is the one I really want to do. This is the one I'm hoping God does, but it sure is filling me with anxiety. Well, pay attention to that. Look for the peace. We just say that to each other all the time. When we have a big decision, we'll, be, we'll spend time in prayer. We'll spend time asking people who are wiser than us. Spend time in the scriptures. And we look for the peace. Look for the peace. That's usually what God is saying to you. It makes sense because the Holy Spirit is the prince. He's the spirit of peace, right? Jesus is the prince of peace. Um, And then the fourth one, maybe most important, act on it. (laughs) Do it, (laughs) right? Do it. This seems simple, but act. Don't wait. And I'm saying this from experience. I, I meet a lot of people who I talk to who are sort of in this perpetual waiting mode about something important. And they'll tell themselves they are waiting on the Lord. And when in reality, they have a fear of failure, right? A fear of movement. They're paralyzed by a fear of action. And I understand this. The way I'm wired, my DNA is to kind of do this. I like to collect a mountain of data before I I take a step forward, right? I want to be really, really sure. And sometimes I'm still not ready to move forward. And sometimes I need a little kick in the pants, usually from my wife or or our team or the Holy Spirit tells me, you know what? You know what to do. It's time to move. It's time to act on it, right? And so act on it. Act on it. Um, God's default is not to stay put. If you look in the scriptures, his default is not that. Life with God is, is, is a river. It's not a pond. It is moving, right? It's in movement. Think of it this way. This, this past week, uh, I came across this really cool company who, who puts out this artwork or posters and stuff like that, and it's called Your Life in Weeks. Have you heard of this? The, it's called 4,000 Weeks. 4,000 Weeks turns out to be, a, on average, about the lifespan of an American, which is sobering, especially when you type in your birthday and you see all the little dots filled in and you see how many dots are left. You're like, dear Jesus, <laughs> I got to get a move on, right? Uh, it's, but it's, it, you know, it's not meant to make you fear, but it's, a, it's meant to make you really value every single day, right? And, and God, this, this life, we should say yes. The burden of proof is not on God to, to just tell you yes all the time. The burden of proof is, is, is on God to, to tell you when not to do it. Why? Because he gave you an intellect. He gave you an intellect. You're not a mushroom. You're a human being, and you're a smart thing. He gave you logic. He gave you the church full of counsel. He gave you leaders and people you can trust. He gave you his word to read. 
Best of all, he gave you the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you, right? So if you're doing all these things, pastorly advice again, don't let the windows of opportunity close unless God is telling you to wait. And then you'll be obedient to that. Pastor Erwin McManus out of California, he says it, and that's just stuck with me. He says, go till you get a no. Go till you get a no, right? Good advice, good advice. Okay, let's keep moving here because we've just, it's so, this is so good. Um, these next questions all have to do with a, a certain thing, and they all have, they reflect a majority of the questions that I've gotten. And so, so we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of on this subject, and the subject is prophecy. Uh, seems to be on a lot of people's minds today. It's a subject on, it's, a, it, it's on a lot of discussion going on around the country right now, prophecy, and especially when it comes to false prophecy. Um, but prophecy, we've talked about this uh, last week, that is, or two weeks ago. It's when, when we hear from God through other people, when we hear from God through other people. So here's an example of some of the questions. If, if someone gets a prophecy wrong, does that make them a false prophet? Uh, this question, what if I think I've heard from some, something from God for someone else? How do I make sure it is from God first so that I'm not a false prophet? That's a good question. That's a, I appreciate that, the humility in that question. Here's one. You talked a couple weeks ago about having grace for people who think they have a word of God for me to take, it off, to take the meat and leave the bones. But what about preachers and evangelists who claim to have a prophetic word from God and they end up wrong? Shouldn't they be held to a higher standard than the average person? Okay. Before I answer these, I want to um, read a passage in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to begin and try to decipher what Jesus is saying here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but here it is on the screen. Matthew chapter 7, we're in verse 15. Jesus has just, this is towards the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is his magnum opus sermon to us, the church. And he finishes it with this, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. So he shifts metaphors now from sheep and wolves to to fruit, to trees. He says, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. By their fruit, you will recognize them. So this whole concept of fruit is very important in this discussion we're having here about who false prophets are, and knowing, knowing this fruit is going to be key to navigating our way through this. So, let's talk for a second. Who, who are false prophets? Uh, it might be worth looking at the Old Testament for, for a minute. In the Old Testament, prophets were people who spoke to the people on God's behalf. The false prophet was usually this figure who they came marching down the road. They like had the big staff and the big white beard. And when they came down the road, you weren't very excited. People like ran into their houses, right? Because the false prophet, or the prophet, sorry, the prophet of God, he came and more often than not, he came with some kind of like scary word, right? He was coming to set people right, to tell them what was going on. If the prophet came to town, there was a reason. There was a reason. So, um, yeah, but they could foretell the future. Sometimes they would foretell the future, but not always. Sometimes they would just speak on behalf of God a word of encouragement, or like I said, more often than not, a word of rebuke. That was the prophet. And the test for whether a prophet in the Old Testament was a false prophet was pretty straightforward. 
Um, if their teaching uh, led the people of Israel away from being faithful to God, as in Deuteronomy 13, or if uh, they predict the future and it doesn't happen, as it tells us in Deuteronomy 18, the Bible would say false prophet. And the penalty, uh, it wasn't that they lost YouTube subscribers. They were put to death. It was death. That was pretty, pretty serious stuff, right? Be like... Ted, we appreciate all that you've done for the church. You've been a great volunteer. 90% of the things you said were really accurate, but, you know, you said coronavirus was going to be done in four weeks. So we're going to have to take you out back and kill you, right? Thank goodness we're in the New Testament, right? We still see some prophecy here in the New Testament church that involves pointing to future events. We see it in the in scriptures. Often by Jesus himself, he would point to future events, uh, things that were regarding himself, where he was about to go do. I'm going to be lifted up. You know, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to raise again. Um, Paul and John occasionally made statements that pointed to uh, usually end times, the end of days, what that would look like. Uh, but what we see in the, for the New Testament church is that prophesying became less about that single person coming to town, you know, wagging his finger with the angry beard and and telling everybody what's what, Uh, and foretelling the future. It became more and more about the members of the body of Christ, as we see in 1 Corinthians 14, the church themselves speaking to one another, speaking to one another. And it says that the one who prophesies uh, speaks God's strengthening, his comfort, his encouragement. And this is true for us today. This is why I, I, I always want to caution people and caution myself too. Um, there can be a lot of hype uh, when it comes to prophecy, but even when there is a prophecy that comes down that talks about maybe the future or this, this and that, we don't want to let it, it's, it's meant to encourage. It's meant to uh, encourage us as we go about what God has already told us to do, as we go about our mission, the great commission, right? It's, so it's meant to encourage. So it's not meant for us to, to overly just focus and live uh, whatever those words are. Now, of course, the, the foretelling portion of prophecy um, is still active today, too. It, it's, that's one demonstration of the gift of prophecy, and that's still valid. And it is kind of the spectacular kind of prophecy that gets all the press, right? Paul tells the church in 14.5, however, he says of all the gifts that are flowing, he says, I love that you guys are speaking in tongues. That's fantastic. But I would even rather that you prophesy to each other. Prophesy to each other. I'd rather you do in that. Um, and he's not saying uh, go around being each other's fortune teller. Go around telling each other's future and reading their palms, right? No, no, no. What did he just say? You're encouraging each other. You're, you're speaking those words of God to each other, building each other up, edifying each other. That's, that's what he's calling us to do. Now, having said that, how do we scripturally, let's look at scripture in the New Testament church, how do we judge prophecy today when it is given? And how do we deal, what do we do with prophecy when it just turns out to be wrong? When Jesus speaks of the false prophets in Matthew 7, as I said, he just got finished preaching three chapters worth of teaching on living in the kingdom of God as people of the kingdom of God. And so quite simply, a false prophet in Jesus' eyes would be anybody who teaches contrary to what Jesus has just taught us. It would be anyone who leads Christians away from obeying what Jesus has just said throughout the Sermon on the Mount. That's pretty simple away from the fruit of the Spirit that he calls us to live out. 
This is the same fruit we see plainly and repeatedly preached throughout the New Testament. In Galatians, Paul mentions fruit of the Spirit. He mentions uh, fruit of the Spirit being things like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. This is the fruit that we should expect to see growing in our own Spirit-filled lives, right? The fruit of the Spirit means the Spirit is indeed inhabiting us. We're living by that, and it's producing fruit. That should be what pops out. And we would expect to see this in our leaders, in our teachers, and yes, in our prophets. We should see this fruit of the Spirit, that they have some sense of kindness, that they have a a growing sense of gentleness, not growing anger, but growing love and joy in how they teach and how they relate to others. These are the kind of qualities that we look for in their character if they're being conformed to Christ. And it's not just how they comport themselves uh, in their everyday life around other people, but also is that how they're teaching others to be? Is that how they're leading? Are they leading other people to be like Jesus, to follow Jesus' teaching? And the number one teaching Jesus gave us, he said, I'm, I'm giving you, right before he ascended to heaven, I'm giving you the ultimate the ultimate commandment right here is the greatest commandment is John 13, to love one another as I have loved you. To love one another. First John 4.1 says, test the spirits to see if they are from God or if they are of a false prophet. Test the spirits. Test the spirits. So what we see here, test the spirits to see. So it's not necessarily that how accurate the prophecy turned out to be. Isn't that interesting? It's the Spirit. Test the Spirit of it. Another way we can tell if prophecy today is of Christ, does it reflect the gospel of Christ? What is the gospel? It's good news. Does it reflect the good news that he told us to take into all the world? The good news that the gods aren't angry. The gods aren't demanding blood anymore, right? That God doesn't hate you. That God's not about to smite everybody with earthquakes and disease for all their sins, No, 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 because this God came and died for our sins. He's already come. He's come. And now we can have a relationship. We can have eternal life in the world to come. And so, you know, uh, with all respect, if your prophecy is about how God's wrath is about to fall on this place because God's fed up, well, I'm sorry, you're you're in the wrong, you're living in the wrong half of the Bible because his wrath has already been poured out on his son. That's what Scripture tells us, right? You're holding up a pre-crucifixion version of divine justice that Jesus has already come and fixed. You hearing me? It didn't didn't work out well when the disciples asked Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven on this town because they were mean to us? Jesus was like, seriously? And it, it doesn't fly today either, right? He would say the same thing to us. In fact, I would say that that, if I can be so bold, is antichrist. It is anti. Christ. I'll just say it because it gets me really amped up when people assign this stuff to Jesus. My Jesus. Doesn't act like that. My Jesus paid for it all. Now, there's something else I want us to notice uh, what Jesus said back in Matthew 7. Look at this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Hmm. He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, he said it again, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. 
And I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Literally, that word is workers of lawlessness. Away from me, workers of lawlessness. This is a pretty sobering passage. Um, it's, it's intense. Jesus is suggesting there's going to be <laughs> some surprises on Judgment Day. First, notice the contrast here between what these false prophets say and what they do. So they're saying the right things. Look what they say. Lord, Lord, this double Lord. It's not only a confession of Jesus as their master. The double Lord here, it suggests a certain passion. Passion. These are passionate people in their faith. Lord, Lord. And sometimes it's just human nature. You and I, we immediately respond uh, to people. We resonate to people. We put our trust in people who can show us a lot of passion, right? We like those people. We love those kind of people. And believe me, passion's a beautiful thing. It's not like there's anything wrong with passion. We don't want to say emotion and passion, being passionate about your faith is wrong. It's just not enough. It is not the sign that God walks with you, being passionate. The other thing we notice about these false prophets, and this one's kind of a puzzler, right? They do have they, they do have particular supernatural, charismatic gifts. It suggests that they're doing really cool stuff. And again, Jesus doesn't condemn the gifts at all. He's going to talk in other places about God-given gifts in the church, the working of miracles that we believe is alive and happening right now today. Absolutely. So what Jesus is saying is that that's not enough. That's not the sign. Now, that goes against what we would normally just want to assume, right? I mean, if somebody's got a lot of passion, man, they, I mean, ooh, that felt really good. That passionate speaker, I loved that. I mean, feel my goosebumps. That must have been, God must have been in that, right? Oh, and even the working of wonders. I mean, wow. He says the gifts are not enough. You have to look for the fruit. The fruit. What are they teaching in light of the teachings of Jesus? How are they living in light of the teachings and the example of Jesus? What is the fruit that they are bearing? We said it before, do they look like Jesus? Does what they say sound like Jesus? If it sounds more like Elijah than Jesus, there might be an issue. There might be a problem. I never knew you, Jesus says to these folks. He says, whatever kingdom you were contending for, it wasn't the kingdom I'm on the throne of. We could say it this way. It is fruit, fruit, not supernatural giftedness. Fruit is what we look for in someone's life to discern whether or not they're truly following Jesus. The fruit. That's what we're allowed to look at. Gifts are not the sign of true faith. There are instances, in the, even in the New Testament, there are instances of people doing signs and wonders, even prophesying, uh, but they were operating by a different spirit than that of Christ. And by the same token, let me say this, nor should we write off someone because of their apparent lack of spiritual gifts, right? What is important is not our gifts, but our fruit. Some people are like, oh, that, that leader, I don't know, they're not... They're all about like humility and gentleness, but you know, they don't have any power. Well, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. Let me go back to that third question here because this one was asked 
and, and just, you know, listening, if you open up the internet and look at the conversations happening all over the country, this seems to be on many people's minds around the country for the past few months. And I suspect it's probably due because of the explosion of, of prophecies and, and predictions we saw in, in certain church circles last, in the last year. This person was saying, and this letter I got from this person, it went on to say, it's one thing for maybe somebody in my home life group or the person, the friend sitting beside me in church to say, I have a word from God for you. Um, and it turns out not to be accurate. You know, we want to have grace for that person. We talked about, well, we have grace for each other, right? Because we're fallible. We're human beings. We're kind of, you kind of practice it. You know, I was raised, you practice these gifts. You practice hearing from the Lord. And sometimes you, sometimes you get it wrong. God's not going to be like, well, I'm done with you. No, no, no. He has grace for us. We have grace for each other. If someone gives you a word and it kind of turns out, that, I, don't, I don't, I think that was really off or something like that. We have grace for that. We eat the fish, spit out the bones, that kind of thing. And this person said, but it's another thing for someone who has publicly claimed to be worthy of our trust. Someone who's publicly claims, you know, unequivocally uh, to represent God's will and his words to people. Who maybe even makes a living on those claims to proclaim something that turns out to be off. A couple of thoughts on this. There is no denying we live in an age today um, that allows anyone with a microphone, easy access to millions of eyes and ears. Is that right? I've got a seven-year-old little girl with her own YouTube channel. You're not going to learn anything from it, but she's really cute, right? YouTube is free. Anybody can get on. Anybody can say anything they want. Um, And this means, though, it becomes much more difficult than ever in human history for Christians to wade through the sea of voices and opinions to find those who do have that God-given gift of prophecy. That's just a fact. And the sad reality is we, we've, seen, we've seen it intimately. We've seen it. In this. It's that there's more characters out there than ever saying things, all sorts of things that not only lead Christians astray, but also represent Christ poorly. They just give Jesus a bad name. People who, increasingly, we have a world now who doubts the sincerity, the motive, the love of the church. And, and for these things, I, I mourn. I mourn for these things. The bad name that we give to Christ, the toxic spirit of Antichrist that is infected so many Christians. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I remain steadfast that the gifts of the Spirit are for real. They are for real, they are for today, and they are for the edification of the church when used correctly, right? When, when used correctly in that spirit, I believe, is desperately trying to call to the church, to call us back to being ambassadors of the kingdom of Christ, that the, the kingdom where Jesus Christ alone sits on the throne. And so as for the question, do we consider these folks to be false prophets? I would go back to what we said before. Um, there might, be a case, there might be cases where we, uh, within the church, the New Testament even spells out ways that we, a mechanism to admonish those within the church um, who, you know, maybe have made rash public statements that proved unchristlike or irresponsible. However, this is not the Old Testament, right? Uh, we're not putting to, to death any of our prophets who got anything wrong. We, in the New Testament, uh, measure by a different standard, we measure folks by not their giftedness, but by their fruit. So let's say a particular public preacher 
um, makes a prophetic prediction and it turns out to be wrong. What do you do? Watch what they do next. What do they, what do, they do next? Do they respond with humility? Do they respond with gentleness? Do they respond with meekness? Do they respond with love? And I've witnessed public figures in my lifetime come out and repent for incorrect prophecies. We've seen that. We've seen that. We've even seen that in this past year. And, and I've also witnessed others who, who invent a bunch of excuses for why they were incorrect, right? Or who, even worse, they double down uh, and refuse to admit that they were wrong. But, you know, this is nothing new. This has been happening in the church for 2,000 years. Just, you know, a little over 100 years ago, a group known as the Jehovah Witnesses came up with five different dates that Jesus was going to return because each one kept being wrong, right? And rather than repent and say, you know, maybe we shouldn't be coming up with a date, they come up with another date, <laughs> right? <laughs> and we, they did it, they're just famous, they did it five times. We love them, we love Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, but confirmation bias is a, a bear to overcome in human beings. The point is, before we write someone off as a false prophet, we want to have grace. I'll say it again, we want to have grace for the fallibility of men and women uh, to interpret what they believe the Holy Spirit is saying to them. And it's kind of like when we talked about the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, when people receive a prophet, when they receive a word from, the God, from God and they deliver that word, most often they are not feeling possessed by a spirit and it's speaking out of their mouth, right? That's kind of like a Greek oracle or something like that. They would actually be possessed by the evil spirit and they would predict the future. That's usually not how prophecy works. It's usually an impression. It's usually they feel the Holy Spirit speaking to them a word, and they, interpreting that word, they give it, right, out of obedience. And so we can have grace for the fallibility of people to interpret that word that the Spirit is giving to them. However, and I think this is, might be where this uh, question is coming from, there is a passage we need to address in James chapter 3. James says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Um, that's another sobering scripture. The suggestion being that while we are all fallible, there is a lot more writing on it when it comes to people's souls. When a famous public figure or someone in leadership who is called to maybe vocational ministry, like a pastor or an evangelist or even a prophet, you know, when, when that person lays an egg in public, a lot more people are affected than the person sitting beside you who just tells you they feel like they had a word from God, right? So is that person held to a higher standard? And the answer, according to James, seems to be yes. The leader in the church whom others look to for guidance will be judged differently. The question is, and listen here, the question is, who is doing the judging? God. God does the judging. We go back to our passage in Matthew 7. What does Jesus say in verse 23? Do you notice who's the judge on judgment day? Who does Jesus teach is the one passing sentence? Himself. Himself. So, so the standards uh, a person in church leadership is held up to and judged by, they're not men's standards. They are God's standards. And that means that all of those who are in those roles will be held accountable to and by God. But he will hold them accountable. 
He will hold them accountable. Jesus said this in the Gospel of Luke. It would be easier for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Talking about leaders. That one flipping keeps me up at night, right? (laughs) Don't cause one of these little ones to stumble. Okay, Jesus, I promise, I promise. But it's God who does the judging. There's a, it kind of touches on, there's a real danger in the church, and there's always been. This is not new to us or anything like that. Ever since the earliest days of the Catholic church, there's always a danger that we elevate people and we put them on pedestals. Um, And we can, we do it either to, you know, for worshiping or for tearing them down when they, when they mess up. But when we do that, we always set ourselves up for disappointment. Always. Because while God may have placed certain people in the church in positions of, of influence, never forget they're just people. They're just people. And people are imperfect. People have baggage. People have biases. And people, even prophets, are susceptible to the same confirmation bias the rest of us are, the same prejudices. And so we're never to put our faith in anyone other than Christ himself. He's the only one who is perfect. He is the infallible living word of God, Jesus Christ. You can put your faith in him. He's not going to fail you. He's not going to get it wrong. So when a prophet predicts something, if you predict something you actually kind of hope will happen, like if you like that prediction, that's good. Don't make him a god. And when a prophet blows it and gets it wrong, don't make him the devil, right? Now, just out of wisdom, you may wisely choose uh, to, to stop following them, um, to stop listening to their prophecies after that point. That's fine. But leave the judgment to God. Amen. Let, let's leave the judgment to God. Pray for them. That's what God told us to do for our friends, our loved ones, and our enemies. So I'd include false prophets. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them to be more sensitive to the Spirit. Pray for yourself to be more sensitive to the Spirit. Pray for them to display the fruit of the Spirit. God, may the fruit of the Spirit just just grow in their life, Lord God. However gifted they are, however gifted, pray for their fans to be protected, for for them, those people who follow them, that the devil would not use their discouragement to make them disillusioned with God. Because invariably, people will get discouraged when something they hope will happen doesn't happen that way. So we pray, God, don't let that become a disillusionment with you. We pray for all of us to better represent Jesus well in the world. That should be our prayer. Our purpose for being here is to help each other become more like Jesus. Help each other become more like Jesus. Help each other become more like Jesus. I'll leave you with the scripture. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Value others above yourself. In all things, walk in humility. In everything, whether you're the one who feels like you have something from God for someone else, walk in humility. You don't have to walk over there and, thus saith the Lord, I've got a message and you better listen to it because this is straight from heaven. You don't do that. You can go and say, I feel like the Lord has spoken to me. I want to be obedient and share it with you. Pray about it. Do with what you will, but I want to be obedient, right? We can walk in obedience, you know, in humility. And if you're the person who receives a word from somebody else and they come to you, I feel like God's got something for you. Oh, we can, we can say thank you. Thank you so much. Whether it was something like really good news, like you're about to make a bunch of money or God wants you to stop doing this. You know, whether it stings or not, you say thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray about that the way God 
The scriptures tell me to. I'm going to test it. I'm going to talk to some people in my life who are wise and get them to wrestle with this with me. Thank you for sharing that. So we can do it with humility. Our posture toward one another should be humility, grace, love, treating each other like a fellow image bearer of God. Amen? Amen, amen. At this time, we're going to receive communion together. You can be getting your uh, elements ready there. Do we have a, uh, an element so I can, I don't have, do we, did I miss it? Oh, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I always forget to bring my own up here. Amen. If you're at home and you're watching this by live stream, we would love for you to participate in this with us. Just grab a little piece of bread there or some juice or whatever you got and participate in this with us. We're getting this ready for us. Um, We've spent the last several weeks looking at ways to hear the voice of God speaking to us. This is important for us because we desire more than to just be adherents of a religion, right? That's, we, we, there's got to be more to life than just joining a religion. No, we want to hear from God. We want to enter into a relationship with Christ himself. And we believe he's speaking to us. We've seen how he can speak to us when we read scripture, when we read scripture, not just to, you know, to know what's the context of the scripture and what's the Greek word for this and who was he speaking to at the time, but we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us when we read the scriptures and let him, we, we find out not just what the scripture wants to tell us, but what does God want to tell us? That's so important. We've seen how it is when we have conversations with each other, holy conversations, the church prophesying encouragement among, among itself. And we've talked about how we train our spiritual ear to recognize his voice, his leading in us, guiding our own thoughts and feelings as we gradually more and more turn over our agenda to his agenda and let him form us into the image of Christ. That same spirit that raised him from the dead is speaking to you right now. I believe that with all my heart. I believe he's speaking to you right now. And he desires to communicate and to commune with you. It's why we call this communion, because this is even now another way. We, we participate in this Lord's Supper, this communion, and you are acknowledging, celebrating this magnificent story, this thousands of year old story. You're saying, this is my story too. I am, I'm a part of this great grand narrative. I'm a part of this because he loves us. He loves you. He actually wants to commune with you. I like what N.T. Wright says. I'll close with this. He says, when Jesus wanted to explain to his followers what his forthcoming death was all about, he did not give them a theory, a model, a metaphor, or any such thing. He gave them a meal. He gave them a meal. This picture right here explains it best to us. It's a meal that we participate in as we receive it. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take this together. If you'll bow your heads, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished in Jesus. I thank you that it it is so rich and so wonderful. These things that we're learning about you, we will spend the rest of our lives investigating the depths of your spirit, and then we'll still have so much more to learn. But Lord, in the meantime, while we learn, we can come to you with our brokenness, our failure, our doubts, because you are our triumphant king. Thank you, Jesus. 
we can rejoice not only in, in our own goodness, Lord God, but in yours. We are so grateful, Lord God. So grateful, Lord Jesus, that we can receive you and we can welcome you. Welcome your forgiveness. Welcome your cleansing. The fresh start that you offer us. And I pray, Lord, even now, that as we celebrate this Lord's Supper together, that this will be, this will be our collective prayer in this house today, that we choose to embrace and participate in this new covenant way of love. We receive this love of Jesus into our hearts as we take this bread and this juice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. The body of Christ broken for you. Let's take the bread. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. The blood of Christ shed for you. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Father God. Hallelujah. God is good. God is good. Can we just spend a few more seconds in his presence? Open up your heart and listen to him as he speaks to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet today as we're leaving? If you have anything going on in your life that we can pray with you about, if you didn't come down before, or if you just want to tell somebody about what it is that is going on in your life so we can continue to stand with you in faith this week, um, I invite you to come forward. Pastor Albert will be down, down here. He would love to pray with you. You can also let us know. Send us your prayer request online. You can do it at gchurch.net slash prayer, or you can do it on the, uh, on the G Church phone app. Um, it's a great way. Just let us know what's going on so we can get our prayer team all praying for you in faith. Amen. Uh, friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his favor all to you in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace be to you. Bye-bye.